Well, good evening, and tonight we continue our look at Jude, so if you want to make your way there, it'd be greatly appreciated. The series that we are currently in on Wednesday night is called Let Us Contend, and it is taken from the third and fourth verse of Jude's letter. Let's read those verses together. Beloved, I was very eager to write to you about our common salvation. I found it necessary to write appealing to you to contend for the faith, for that which was once and all delivered to the saints. And then he goes on to tell us why in verse 4. For certain people have crept in unnoticed, who long ago were designated for for this condemnation, ungodly people who pervert the grace of our Lord God into sensuality and deny our only Master and Lord, Jesus Christ. Within these two verses, Jude gives us the aim of the letter. It was his desire to write to us, to help us and to encourage us and to edify us in our new faith in Jesus Christ, our common salvation, that salvation that we all share who are in Jesus Christ. However, though, circumstances at that time required uh, Jude to take another course of action. He had to change the direction of his letter due to the fact that certain people had crept in amongst them, that is, amongst this group of believers in which he is writing to, and they began to spread false lies about Christ, about the faith. Uh, They began to uh, uh, reiterate things that were um, unbiblical, unscriptural, And Jude saw this as a detriment to the health of these new believers and to the body of Christ, and he was right in doing so. Very early on in my Christian faith, I was warned by many pastors to learn the Word of God thoroughly that I may be able to discern truth from error. And I felt that that was some of the most uh, important advice I had ever been given. As a young man, it came in handy, I don't know how many times, knowing the Word of God and therefore being able to discern what I was listening to, what I was watching, being able to discern the truth from the error within it. And therefore, once you discover the error, then you reject the error and you don't seem to follow the error and go down that road that would lead you into all kinds of pitfalls and eventually away from the Lord. I want to give you that same warning this evening. I think it is imperative that you and I as believers in Jesus Christ know the Bible well enough that we can discern truth from error that we know what is truly of God and truly written in His Word and those things that are not. And being able to discern those things, we don't have to accept those things that are in error and therefore we don't have to follow them and take and let them take us where they are leading us. It's a very stern warning. And notice what Jude says here. I wanted to write to you about our common salvation. This was my desire. This was the desire of my heart. But It was more pressing, it it was more needed for you that I write concerning these individuals who have crept in amongst you and have begun to sow the error of their teaching. He then goes on from the aim of the letter 
to the argument of the letter, verses 5 through 16. It is these verses that we will look at together this evening in a message entitled, The Argument of the Letter of Jude. Because now he begins to show us, he begins to describe for us these individuals that have crept in amongst them. He wants us to know their character. He wants us to know so that we may be aware of them and that we would not follow them or listen to them. Satan seems to have a twofold strategy concerning his infiltration of the church and trying to destroy what God is doing. That first strategy we find in the book of Acts is outward persecution, persecution of the believers of Jesus Christ by the world. Now we're going to also discover in the book of Acts that what the world intended to uh, stop and to cease Christianity, God used for the expansion of Christianity and Christianity like a flame being stomped out, the sparks of it went everywhere and began to just uh, burn in those areas in which it landed and they couldn't stop it. But then Satan said, okay, apparently if I can't stop them from without... I'm going to raise up people from within to sow all kinds of problematic doctrine. I'm going to sow in error. I'm going to sow in false teaching. I'm going to sow in discord. And bringing them amongst the people, and it is these that Jude seems to be warning us of. The Bible would call these individuals apostates, ones who were affiliated or once walked with God, who then turned and completely rejected God and beginning to even deny God. But these individuals think that they have attained some type of enlightenment, some type of enrichment, some type of elevation to allow them some type of authority over other followers of God. Apostates were something that almost every one of the New Testament writers were concerned about. Paul introduces us to it. Uh, Peter, Jude, uh, etc. John writes about apostates, those who leave the faith and then become the greater antagonists towards the faith. It's something we need to be uh, consider. But he really wants to communicate to these new Christians, and I say new in the sense that Christianity was only about 30 years old at this time that Jude was writing. Jude being a stepbrother of Jesus Christ, born uh, to Joseph and Mary, probably the youngest of the sons, and he is now writing along with his brother James, who also was a stepbrother, and I say that because God the Father was Jesus' father. Joseph was Jude and James' father. So same mother, different dads. And uh, here we have Jude writing to us to encourage us, knowing that he wanted to write about something, but he couldn't. And it should get our attention. Peter, before dying, before being martyred for the Christian faith, took his last opportunity to write Second Peter that we may know the dangers of false teachers and false teaching. And he gives us an incredibly detailed profile of what these individuals would look like and what motivates and moves them to do what they do. Jude seems to capture a lot of the essence of 2 Peter within his writing, using almost the same vernacular, the same vocabulary, and uh, reiterating and uh, pronouncing once again the same things Peter has. 
Now Jude, though being a brother of Jesus Christ, is never named with the uh, 12 apostles as Peter was. So he might have been doing it as Peter setting the precedent and then Jude then um, using that precedent to gain the attraction and authority, wanting the individuals to read the letter and to know and to take it seriously. But obviously the Spirit of God was moving Jude to do this. It was canonized with the other books of the Bible and we have it today and we read it today. Why is this an issue for us today? False teaching still exists. False teachers still exist. And we have the promise of Scripture that as we grow closer to the return of Jesus Christ, it's only going to get worse. It's only going to get worse. So we need to be aware of these things. There are a lot of good churches in America today, and I'm thankful for every single one of them. There are a lot of good pastors who love their people, love Jesus, love the Word, and are feeding and loving the congregations that they are over. And I thank God for every single one of them. But there are others who are not nearly as faithful, who have their own agendas. And we must be aware of these things. We must know the Word of God to discern truth from error. We stated last week that there are areas of Christianity, doctrines of Christianity that we can agree to disagree on. What we would call non-essential doctrines. And we use an example saying the continuation of the spiritual gifts such as the sign gifts that we find listed for us in 1 Corinthians 12. Many in the church today believe that those gifts are still active amongst the church in, in, uh, in, our, in our time today as they were when they first started uh, back in the book of Acts. And I agree with that. I think, I think that these gifts still exist and are exercised in a way for the edification of the body and are given as the Spirit of God desires them to be used for that edification of the body of Christ. But there are other dear believers, sweet believers, who may believe that those gifts have ceased with the completion of the Word of God. Now, I think this is an area that we can agree to disagree on and still remain in unity and in fellowship. However, though, there are doctrines that we cannot agree to disagree upon and remain in fellowship. And some of those doctrines would be the deity of Jesus Christ. That is, Jesus Christ being God. We as Christians believe that Jesus Christ is God. If someone says to you that he is not God, that is not someone who is following Christ. That is someone who is denying Christ. Um, I also believe that one of the things we cannot compromise on for theological reasons is the virgin birth, which is something that Christians now are debating. Did, was Mary actually a virgin uh, when she conceived and gave uh, birth to Jesus? Theologically, she had to be for the, him to be perfect and acceptable before God and sinless, etc., so I believe that's something we, we can't agree to disagree upon. We uh, disagree, period, and we cannot continue in fellowship and unity. That's a deal breaker. I'm going to go one step farther because there's a lot who now want, there's many who today who want to tell us that hell isn't a real place any longer. That's a deal breaker too. Jesus warned us about hell. He made it emphatic that hell existed, and for those who would reject Jesus Christ, that's the eternity that awaits them, um, separated from God for their entire existence. So there are things we can agree to disagree upon and remain in unity and fellowship, but there are other things that we have to disagree upon and sever any type of fellowship. 
because they are detrimental. I'll give you one more that we cannot just simply agree to disagree upon, and that is the, um, uh, the Word of God being infallible and being inspired. It is the infallible, inspired Word of God, the final authority in all man- uh, spiritual theological manners, and that's the way it should be viewed by the Christian. And if that is not viewed, then there is some diff- there's a lot of difficulties there. Um, so I'm trying to give you some examples that would cause grave difficulties in fellowship, in unity, etc. And we're going to find here that these were even more blatant. Uh, they were denying Christ. They were living sensual lives. They were allowing the grace of God to be a license for sin. Um, and they had their own self-interests in, in mind. Uh, they were spouting their own ideas, conjured in dreams, and so forth. And they were... Um, uh, detrimental to the health of the unity of that group of Christians. And so the very first thing that Jude wants to remind us of is he gives us seven Old Testament examples. This is what many of the writers of the New Testament did. They went back to the Old Testament because those were considered to be Scripture, and they are. The Old Testament is the infallible, inspired Word of God. And so they would use it as precedent, as a proof text. They would use it to convey and to communicate a point. And as Jude is writing, we discussed this on Monday, a few of us, I don't believe that he knew that he was writing a New Testament letter. He was simply writing a letter. And obviously uh, the Spirit of God was inspiring him to write what he wrote. And uh, he used examples not only from the Old Testament, but from a a work called a a pseudepigrapha, which is the Assumption of Moses, and also a book of the Apocrypha, First Enoch. And we're going to talk about that. You know, how does that happen? How does that work? Well, the the Spirit inspired him to do this. And just because he uses a portion of it doesn't mean that the entirety of that book that it was taken from is inspired. We should only look at what the Spirit has given us as the inspired work of God. So let's begin in verse 5. As he begins with these Old Testament examples, he first wants to remind us of how God dealt with those who rebelled against him. Now I want to remind you, verse 5, although you once fully knew it, that Jesus, who saved a people out of the land of Egypt afterwards destroyed those who did not believe. Now, if you're reading the New King James here this evening, or the NIV, or the um, NASB, you're going to find the word Lord there. It was the Lord that delivered them out of Egypt. But the oldest manuscripts that we now have state Jesus, that it was Jesus showing that there was already recognition that Jesus existed prior to his birth. Because remember, he was with the Father in heaven before he was born in that manger there in Bethlehem. He eternally existed as the Son of God, and he existed at that point, and it was him who is being given credit for leading the children of Israel out of the land of Egypt the Lord obviously uh, is a, is a, uh, uh, of course, denotes the same thing. Uh, of course, us being those who hold to the Trinity, Father, Son, and Holy Spirit, the Lord, okay, we understand that. But here, 
we have old manuscripts that actually say Jesus. That now we believe with confidence can be inserted there. And now there is that understanding. And it's fascinating to consider that by 60-something A.D., they already knew the pre-incarnate Christ. They understood how he worked. They understood who Jesus was. And they give him credit here for an Old Testament example, clearly delineating it and giving it the authenticity that it was Jesus who led them out. I think that's fascinating. But let us not forget what he says here, though. Yes, he led them out. But after leading them out and after they came through the wilderness to the land, to the edge of the land in which God was about to give them, what happened? There were those amongst them that rather listened to the spies who went in. Out of the twelve, remember, two came out, said it's easy. The other ten said, nope, it's not so easy. And the people listened to the ones who said it was not so easy. And because of that unbelief, God did not allow them to enter into the promised land. And they were brought to nothing as they wandered the wilderness for 40 years. It was only those two, Caleb and Joshua, who were allowed to enter in. And this is something that those who were reading this letter who were Jewish previously and now had come to saving faith in Jesus Christ would have remembered that they rebelled against God at that moment. They did not trust him. They did not believe in him. And because of their lack of belief, because of their unfaithfulness, because they weren't willing to trust him, they died apart from him. So he gives us this warning that would have been uh, certainly understood and accepted by all of those who were reading it. They would have remembered this as a historical fact and would have desired to learn from it. Just because an individual goes to church doesn't make them a Christian. We've stated that over and over and over again, and I don't think it can be reiterated enough. Everyone needs to examine their life and to know that they are in the faith. They need to know that they have received Christ. They need to uh, know that they've repented and have placed their faith and trust in Him and Him alone for their salvation and now desire to pursue after Him. You know, there are many who claim Christianity today. If you listen to the statistical polls that are canvassed across America, you would think that we are the most on-fire nation in the entire world because it still comes back 70-80% say they're Christian. And we know that's not true. They may associate themselves with Christianity. They may have uh, grown up in a tradition of Christianity, but they're nominal at best. And that, that position of being nominal it doesn't save anybody. It is those who have repented and placed their faith and trust in Jesus Christ and have been born again. It is those who are truly saved. It is those who are truly in Christ. So just because an individual sits within a church doesn't mean that they're saved. Yes, he brought a whole group of people, the Jewish people, out of Egypt. But the ones who went in, the ones who uh, truly experienced all that God had for them are the ones who believed him the ones who trusted him. But then he goes on to give them another example in verse 6. 
and the angels who did not stay within their own position of authority, but left their proper dwelling. He has kept in eternal chains under gloomy darkness until the judgment of the great day. This is a complete uh, reiter- reiteration of something Peter wrote in Second Peter 2.4. For if God did not spare angels when they sinned, but cast them into hell, and that word is a very specific word, Tartarus in the Greek, and committed them to chains of gloomy darkness to be kept until the judgment. There are angels that have rebelled against God. They had left their places of authority, as it says here. Their, uh, the positions that they were supposed to held, they left. They left their proper dwelling and they rebelled against God. Now we know that there was the fall of Satan prior to the creation of man. And, you know, a third of the angels fell with him. But these angels are specifically marked out. And the consequence of their action is described both in Peter and here that they are in eternal chains in gloomy darkness waiting judgment until judgment. Most believe, and I agree with them, that what he is referring to there, because they are being held in an area of hell called Tartarus, which was a, a unique word used there to denote a special locale, and it's only used twice, I believe, in the entire Bible, here and in Peter 2.4, 2 Peter 2.4, that these were the angels that left their proper place, came amongst the human women of Genesis 6, intermingled with them, and these individuals are then created from that union that are labeled as Nephilim. Now, some reject that position, saying that, no, these women simply intermingled with the ungodly line uh, of us. I mean, the godly... They did not mingle with the godly line of Seth, but the ungodly line. But everyone in the line of Seth was, was ungodly. There was no godly of Seth. I think that is a, a, a very weak argument. But these angels came down and they had relationships with women and those individuals birthed from those relationships are then classified as Nephilim. And shortly then after that, the world is judged by a flood. And I believe with those who, who also state that Satan's uh, plan was to pollute the line that was going to bring about Messiah and so forth. And apparently these angels who did this unspeakable thing are now being kept in a place uh, waiting judgment. Uh, some translations have the abyss, Tartarus, uh, this place waiting for the judgment, because we know the angels that fell at creation before creation uh, are you know the, Satan's henchmen now, the demons that lurk with him. But these individuals are captured, and we have to take that into note. And he is he is making his argument now. Remember the Jew, the Jewish people when they came out of Egypt. Some did not believe they died in the wilderness. Remember, God held them accountable. Remember the angels that left their first abode and and they came now and intermingled and they did what they did and created the havoc that they did. God has now kept them for eternal judgment in this dark and fallen place. And here is the other reason why I believe that it is referring to the account in Genesis 6 
because of the likeness of the occurrence here in verse 7 and in within the next example of Sodom and Gomorrah. Just as Sodom and Gomorrah and the surrounding cities which likewise indulged in sexual immorality. Now I want to pause there for a moment because grammatically the likewise that is listed there is referring to the actions of the angels that were previously listed. Likewise, just as these angels did what they did, and likewise in an unnatural sexual immorality, these individuals in Sodom and Gomorrah experienced the wrath of God, the judgment of God, because of this indulging in sexual immorality and pursued unnatural desires, served as an example by undergoing a punishment of eternal fire. If you mention Sodom and Gomorrah today, what does everybody think of? Judgment, right? But understand what was taking place there within Sodom and Gomorrah. Understand, too, what the Bible here, Jude, is alluding to. What brought about this judgment? It was their constant indulging in unnatural sexual immorality. And Genesis tells us clearly that this unnatural sexual immorality was homosexuality. Understand that. That's what the Bible is teaching. And God held them accountable. And there's this account in Genesis that is given to us that when the angels came to Sodom and Gomorrah, as they entered the city, they could not judge the city until they delivered one individual, Lot, and his family from the city. So they went to Lot's house. Can you imagine that? Two angels showing up on the doorstep, saying, listen, Lot, pack your stuff, get your family. You have to leave because we are about to burn this city down. I I can't even fathom that. But this next part of the the account is even more difficult for me to, to, to embrace that after the angels entered into Lot's house, the men of the city came and pounded on the door and asked Lot to let these angels, these men out, so they could have sexual relations with them. Oh my gosh. The angels that came who have been sent by our Heavenly Father to destroy and to judge the city as they entered into Lot's house, the city men, are, the men of the city are pressing in upon the door and they're saying, Lot, give us, give us these two that we may have relations with them. That's just unbelievably deprived. And it is interesting that in like fashion this takes place. And that's why I believe that the angels, like the unnatural sexual immorality of Sodom and Gomorrah, has all brought upon God's judgment. He held the children of Israel accountable. He held the angels accountable. He held Sodom and Gomorrah accountable. Now he is going to hold these individuals who have crept in amongst them accountable for what they are doing. In verse 8, Yet in like manner these people also relying on their dreams defile the flesh, they reject authority, and blaspheming the glorious ones, 
But when the archangel Michael contending with the devil was disputing about the body of Moses, he did not presume to pronounce a blasphemous judgment, but said, The Lord rebuke you. But these people blaspheme all that they do not understand, and they are destroyed by all that they, like unreasoning animals, understand instinctively. Woe to them, for they walk in the way of Cain and abandon themselves for the sake of gain to Balaam's error and perish in Korah's rebellion. Let's back up for a moment. He tells us here very clearly that these individuals, in like manner, again, these people also, relying on their dreams. They have no understanding of how they are coming to the conclusions that they are. They are simply uh, following their own logic, their own understanding of things. They defile their flesh thinking that there is no value to it. They reject all types of authority. Uh, it could be the authority of God, of that of angels, of those in authority in the church, which would be elders or apostles, and blaspheme the glorious ones. Now, the older translations use the word dignitaries. Uh, I understand where they're coming from, but again, it seems to be the angelic hosts that they are referring to here. It is these that they are blaspheming. The Jewish people held angels in extremely high regard. In fact, so high regard that the writer of Hebrews had to devote a whole chapter to uh, 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 indicating within this chapter that Jesus was superior to any angel. An angel is a created being, and there was only so many of them that have been created. They were created by God. Jesus himself was never created because he is God. He existed eternally, eternally from past, eternally into the future. But angels have a, a specific period of time, a duration of existence. They were created. Angels are never superior to Jesus Christ. But these take it upon themselves even to blaspheme angels. Now I think it's interesting in the context of everything that we're seeing, obviously, that Sodom and Gomorrah is the last example that Jude uses, and these individuals had no regard for angels whatsoever. They wanted to have relations with those angels. And now he's saying that even angels... Now, the uh, Bible tells us that the Jews credited angels for bringing the law and so forth and uh, giving them the, what they had, angels interacting on, uh, on uh, behalf of God. Of course, Jacob's Ladder, a famous uh, account where uh, Jacob sees angels ascending and descending on the ladder and, of course, all of that imagery. Angels were greatly respected. And then the writer uh, quotes from a work which is called a pseudepigrapha, called the Assumption of Moses, talking about this event of a dispute between the Archangel Michael, which means chief angel. The Archangel Michael is one of three angels that are named within the Bible. Can anybody else name the other two? Gabriel and who? Lucifer, Satan. Yeah, very good. I'm not forgetting one, right? There's only three. <laughs> Sometimes I 
forget to do my Bible trivia before I get here, but the three that we have named, and Michael's always called the archangel, and it's interesting that as you see the scriptures in which Michael is uh, mentioned with within, you get the idea that he is a protector of the nation of Israel. He's in there, Daniel 10, Daniel 12, um, overseeing and, and watching over Israel, where Gabriel, on the other hand, he had his hands full because he was watching over a, a certain individual who announced his birth the shepherds, Gabriel. And so it's, it's, it's really interesting that you can see their roles, but it's always the archangel Michael, the chief angel. When it came to the body of Moses, as you know, referring to Deuteronomy, that last chapter, verse 34, where you know, Moses is buried and his body is not seen again, there is this work called a pseudepigrapha. And let me give you a definition of what that word means. A pseudepigrapha are falsely attributed works, text whose claimed author is represented by a separate author or a work whose real author attributes it to a figure of the past in time. So you take that information and do with it as you will. But basically it is something that is written about someone that it's not, he didn't write it himself, someone else wrote it uh, concerning a specific time, but these are not inspired works. But the Assumption of Moses was a work that we didn't even have evidence for until the 1600s. And we have one fragment of it now claiming to its authenticity that it did exist, the Assumption of Moses. But understand that Jewish people had these as works of tradition. They knew these works. And so Jude is talking about this. And he he reiterates and states that when Michael was confronted by Satan over the body of Moses... And the body of Moses, obviously, uh, God wanted it to appear at the Mount Transfiguration. I also believe he'll be one of the two witnesses in Revelation uh, and so forth. Um, But that being said, this dispute, what we need to learn from it is that even the archangel Michael wouldn't proclaim judgment upon upon Satan. Battle him, deal with him, etc., but wouldn't proclaim a rebuke upon him. Referring to that passage in uh, Zechariah, uh, the archangel Michael didn't even take the presumption to do such a thing. He said, not I, the Lord rebuke you. I'm going to leave that to Jesus. Again, I think it's a beautiful a picture that Jesus is superior to all angels. If it, the chief priest angel himself is saying, no, no, I'm not going to dispute with you. I'll let the Lord rebuke you. But he goes on to say, but these people blaspheme all that they do not understand. And they are destroyed by all that they, like unreasoning animals, understand instinctively. He is describing for us that these individuals that have crept in amongst them are acting out of the natural nature, the fallen nature. And what they're acting upon, they believe that there's some kind of elevation or enlightenment or superiority that has been gained, but in actuality it is destroying them. It is destroying them. And he wants us to understand that they would even presume to have the audacity to rebuke the glorious ones and to speak against them when the archangel Michael himself to Satan would not allow himself to do it, but said, the Lord rebuke you. I always get very leery when someone says that they've recently encountered and have rebuked Satan. 
I got to be honest with you. If Satan were to appear before me either in the form of an angel of light or in a grotesque image figure after I peed my pants and fainted, I would then cry out to my heavenly Father and ask for Jesus to intercede, okay? Let's be honest, right? I I can't even watch The Exorcist. I, I just can't do it. Don't go home and try it for yourself. I don't recommend it at all. It's gross, okay? I take no presumption whatsoever when it comes to any kind of interaction with Satan himself. Now, I'm sure that Satan because he is not omnipresent, he isn't at all places at all time, he's probably not concerned with me whatsoever. He's probably got one of his, you know, uh, privates or corporals maybe I've made in his demonic ranks maybe hassling me. Who knows? But that being said, I would not presume to do anything because it isn't in my strength that I stand. It's in the strength of God. It is the Holy Spirit in me that allows me to have victory over such things. Because he who is in me is greater than he who is in the world. All I have to know is that my dad, well, I can't say that because he was created by God too, but my Jesus is much more significant than he is. And that's all I need to know. So think of the audacity of these individuals. Think of the presumption. Think of them acting out of their natural fallen state and coming to the conclusions they are by mere dreams as their basis of authority. You know, it's interesting when people talk about the things of God today apart from any kind of knowledge of Scripture, they either base their understanding of God on their personal experiences or some unusual conclusion that they've come up with without any kind of basis whatsoever. And that's basically what Jude's getting here. They are sowing this false doctrine, this false teaching, and understand where it's coming from. It's not coming through the inspiration of the Spirit. It's not coming through the teaching of the Word of God. It's coming up because they just dreamt it up. It's coming out of their base nature, which they think is helping them, but in actuality it's destroying them. That's what Jude's saying here. And as he goes on here, he shows that they have a complete uh, disdain for authority. I think that our nation is at a place, we are at a very critical crossroad right now, and many are starting to sense it and see it. I don't know if you have watched the recent elections but it is almost impossible to gain a consensus any longer. People vote for two candidates because those are the only two candidates that they are. If there were 50 candidates, the voting would be all over the place because everybody has their own ideas and opinions of what authority should look like. But I I want to read this to you because I think this is extremely important for us to understand today. In this disdain for authority, we need to learn something about ourselves and our culture today. Today, our culture encourages us to reject authority and to recognize self as the only real authority in our lives. I can't agree with that more. In the abandonment of God, 
First, government played the role of authority, but now that is being put to the side, and it is now coming down to self. Think of it this way. How highly valued is the personal opinion here in America today? It is like the Supreme Court. The personal opinion of an individual is like the Supreme Court. It cannot be challenged, it should not be questioned, and we, by all means, should not disagree with it. But as we elevate self, we find ourselves in a very precarious position. As we go on to identify that, he goes on to write, we can do this with the Bible by choosing only to believe certain passages. Now think about it for a moment in the life of the Christian. I'm very concerned how self has been so exalted amongst Christianity in America that these are some of the fruits of that reality. Number one, many Christians today believe that they have the capability because they are speaking in their own authority, to choose certain parts of the Bible to believe and to reject others. Has anybody met someone like that? Oh man, all the time. Secondly, we can do this with our beliefs by choosing at the salad bar of religions. Several individuals I have talked to in the last two years have taken elements of various religions around the world, various worldviews, and have compl- uh, uh, not complicated, that is a good word to use, but have compiled a religion for themselves that they are comfortable with, but the final authority is they themselves. So you have some picking and choosing from the Bible, you have some picking and choosing from other religions in the world, Or we can do this with our lifestyle by making our own rules and not recognizing the proper authorities God has established. That is so true. So this exaltation of self that we see permeating our culture is becoming detrimental. And I love what this individual wrote at the end. In the darkest days of Israel's history, society was characterized by a term. And that term was this. Every man did what was right in his own eyes. Today, this is the pattern of all the world and especially Western civilization. The darkest periods of time are those that self was so exalted that it became the final authority in all things and allowing itself to say every man did what was right in his own eyes. That's subjectivity. Jews saw this as a, as a problem. The authority of God being resisted by these individuals. The authority of the angels that God would send. Uh, the authority is of the offices in which God has appointed through the Holy Spirit within the church. Those who were apostles at that time. Those who were elders at that time. Those who were watching over the souls of the individuals, feeding and edifying and equipping them to fulfill the work of the ministry. There is an authoritative structure that God has set forth and these individuals were rebelling against that. He then describes them by using three more Old Testament examples, this time individuals, Cain, Balaam, and Korah. In verse 11, he says, Woe to them, for they walk in the way of Cain, the first of uh, the two brothers to uh, uh, sin in the manner that he did. Cain, of course, killed his brother Abel because Abel's sacrifice was accepted by God. 
The New Testament tells us that Cain did what he did because Abel was righteous, Cain was unrighteous. Cain is the first example of an individual trying to come to God on his or her own basis. And as a result, God rejected it. We cannot approach God apart from Jesus Christ. We understand that, right? I am the way, the truth, and the life. No one comes to the Father but through me. It is imperative that we understand that. There are not many roads that lead to God. Let me correct you. There are many roads that lead to God, but there's only one road that leads to heaven, and that's through Christ. All the other roads lead to God, and at that place, every knee shall bow, every tongue confess that Jesus Christ is Lord, but it's too late. Cain. They went in the, in the way of Cain. They wanted to formulate their own idea of how they are going to interact and access God and determine what God would want for their lives. And then they go on to Balaam. For Balaam is another interesting character. Hired by Balak as a prophet, Balaam was a prophet in the Old Testament, hired by Balak to pronounce a judgment, a curse against the children of Israel. And I'll let you read it for yourself. You know, Balaam is all over the, um, uh, of the Old Testament, Numbers 22 uh, through 25, and you can read it there on your own. But Balaam hired to do such a thing, couldn't bring an accusation against them that the Lord had not pronounced, So Balaam then, because he loved the money that Balak was offering and wanted to possess that money, wanted to gain that money, told Balak how the children of Israel could be defeated by allowing them to intermingle with the women of other areas that God has said not to do. It is interesting that the donkey in whom Balaam rode upon had more sense than Balaam himself. I also think that it's very interesting that as the donkey is proceeding and the angel of the Lord then stands, the fiery there, uh, fiery angel of the Lord with the sword stands before him. Balaam doesn't see him, but the donkey does. The donkey stops. Balaam starts beating the donkey. So he, have, he just ticked off Peter and Greenpeace. And then the donkey turns around and does what you would expect a donkey to do. Begins to verbally rebuke Balaam. You know, and, and they think Shrek is a new idea. And here's the most ironic part, the part that really gets me. Balaam talks back to the donkey. Okay, that's another moment that you're just saying, okay, what is going on here? But see, Balaam wanted that money that Balak was offering and gave Balak a way to defeat the children of Israel by having the children of Israel sin against their own God. And that's what these individuals were doing. They wanted the gain And so they were willing to have people sin against their own God. It's sick. And then he goes on to Korah, Numbers 20, uh, I'm sorry, Numbers 16. The book of Numbers, chapter 16, talks of Korah's rebellion. As Korah here being an individual who came up against the authority of Moses and wanted to overthrow him, and his rebellion was rejected. So you had... Cain, you had Balaam, you had Korah, and all three of these give us a profile of the character and the attitude of these individuals. Now, Jude uses these people because these were notarized people in history. 
If I say to you, Adolf Hitler, what do you think of? World War II, the Holocaust, everything else. But understand here that these individuals, once they said these things, they would immediately remember how they were uh, indicted in the Bible for the things that they had done wrong. And they were held to account and they were etched in history as examples of what not to do. And that's exactly why he uses them here in this way. I would encourage you to go back. Obviously, um, I want to let you know that Second Peter uses these same examples. Um, it definitely uses Balaam and Cain. I, I don't know if he uses Korah. I don't think he does. Uh, but uses the other two. And uh, Jude has picked up on that to use it to describe these people. Now let me ask you at this point, before we go any farther, because this next section is so compelling to me. Are these people you'd want to follow? No. These are not people that you would want to follow. Understand that this is the character and the nature of false teachers. Those who have rejected the faith. Those who would come in stealthily amongst us to destroy us, to sow discord, disunity, to sow false teaching. Uh, These are the characteristics of these people. These are the apostates. And we should not listen to them. And I empower you as individuals that if you ever hear anyone saying anything in this church that doesn't make biblical sense, ask them about what they are saying. And if they don't give you an answer that is compelling uh, and, and you're still concerned by it, bring it to leadership and let me deal with it. Or let Pastor Joe or Pastor Chris uh, deal with it or bring it to Derek or bring it to Alec. Let them deal with these guys, okay? Because we want to make sure that we nip it in the bud before it occurs. That's why Jude's writing what he's writing. Because all of us are on a journey, right, with the Lord. We're in a walk with the Lord day by day, right? We've walked, he's rescued us out of the world and we are now in relationship with him in Christ And we are walking with him day by day and day by day. He is sanctifying us. He is is moving us and he is returning us to the image of, of Jesus, that image that he originally intended us all to be within. And he is bringing us to a place. And when we do die or are taken from this earth in the rapture, we will be with him for all eternity, right? It's a journey. And I love the words that Jude uses in this next section to show the uselessness of these individuals. And they all equate with a person who is on a journey, one who is traveling. And of course, the the mode of transportation that was most readily available at that time was walking. And this is how he describes these individuals in relationship to one who is on a journey, one who is walking. Listen to what he says here. These are hidden reefs at your love feasts as they feast with you without fear. One of the most dangerous things for, a, for any mariner of the sea at that time were those reefs that were just under the surface of the water. They did everything that they could to travel at times that the sea was the highest to avoid those because the hull of the ship or the, um, the portion of the ship that's under the water, I can't think of the word right now, um, the belly of the ship, of course, would be submerged. There's a portion of it that's underneath the keel of the ship. That's it, the keel of the ship, the portion that's underneath the water. 
you know, it travels maybe three, four, five, six feet under the water, and you can't see the reef on top, the reef on top, and you're sailing along, and then all of a sudden, bam, you hit it, and it tears the bottom of the boat out from underneath it, and the whole ship sinks. That's what these people are like. They are wreaths just under the water. And they eat with you in these love feasts and they do it without fear or without regard. Uh, They're leading people like shepherds, yes, but they're feeding themselves. The shepherd isn't, was concerned about the sheep and their uh, you know, health and well-being and feeding them. No, that's not what these individuals are concerned about. These individuals are leading people, but they are devouring those people that they are leading rather than tending and caring for them. Then he goes on here. Um, they are feeding themselves. They are like waterless clouds swept along by the winds. Travelers would look for clouds that could possibly dispense water. Why? Because there's so much desert. If a cloud formed and water could be had, it could be a source of water to sustain them to the next watering place. All of the maps of the ancient world have roads that are constructed and the points of those roads often end at wells. That's why wells are so important. So they promise something These false individuals, they promise to sustain you with what they are giving you, but in actuality, they're like waterless clouds. You keep hoping and hoping and hoping and hoping that they have something to offer, but in actuality, they have nothing. And if you were to follow them through the desert, you would simply die. Why? Because they themselves are swept along by the winds as these waterless clouds are. Fruitless trees in the late autumn, twice dead, uprooted, meaning they're no good. Nothing again to sustain you on your journey. Wild waves that would toss any ship to and fro, they are so violent, they carry you where they want you to go. But in actuality, all they actually do is take you off course and bring about foam that is good for nothing. That's the imagery that is being given to us here. And then the last one. For their own shame, wandering stars, for whom the gloom of utter darkness has been resumed forever. What is one of the ways that both mariners, seamen, and travelers on land would guide themselves at night? What did they use for their points of navigation? Stars. Why? They were fixed, right? They were fixed points. If you had stars that were continuously moving, they couldn't guide you anywhere, could they? That's the imagery Jude's bringing about here. They're useless. They're leading you, but they're leading you to destruction. They don't have anything to offer. They're tossing you to and fro. They're being carried about by wind. There's nothing to it. They're just leading you astray and ultimately into destruction. And lastly, their future is captured for us here in verses 14 through 16. And it was also about these that Enoch, now he's quoting from an Apocrypha source, the seventh from Adam, prophesying, saying, and I believe this is uh, 1 Enoch 1.9, 
if you want to look it up for yourself, behold, the Lord comes with 10,000 of his holy ones to execute judgment on all and to convict all the ungodly of their deeds of ungodliness that they have committed in such an ungodly way and of all the harsh things that ungodly sinners have spoken against him. How many ungodlies can you use in one sentence? These are people who are irreverent towards God. They have no desire for God whatsoever. And as Enoch had stated, and which was already in Jewish tradition, that these are going to be held accountable at the Lord's return when he comes to judge and is followed by 10,000 of his holy ones. Again, the Holy Spirit taking a portion of the assumption of Moses and the portion of First Enoch and bringing it in because these events describe what is going to occur. It's fascinating. But Jude wants you and I to know that these individuals are not ones that we would want to follow. As he goes on here and concludes in verse 16, these are grumblers, malcontents, following their own sinful desires. They are loud-mouthed boasters showing favoritism to gain advantage. Remember that after everything that we have just read, he starts out by saying, I didn't want to write this, but I had to. I wanted to write about our common salvation in Christ, but out of necessity... These individuals have crept in amongst you. Here is how you may identify them. Here is what you may understand them. Please do not follow them. Do not listen to them. Run. Expel them from your midst. Get rid of them. We need to take teaching very seriously, folks. And I am am getting concerned. Because there seems to be a lack of discernment amongst the body of Christ today. And Christians are no longer able to discern truth from error. And I believe it is directly uh, related to the fact of the level of biblical illiteracy that there is today in our nation. When you read some of the writings of even 200, 150, 100 years ago, of men who did not necessarily claim to be Christian or women who claimed to be Christian, even in their secular writings, they had enough understanding of the Word of God that it came out within their writings. There was a reverence, there was a respect. Even Ben Franklin himself, who was not a Christian, had a tremendous reverence for the Word of God. But today, there seems to be an indifference towards the Word of God. In some cases, a disdain for the Word of God. But today, many Christians believe that a lot of the Word of God is irrelevant for them today. But I tell you that the Scriptures has been given to us that we may be thoroughly equipped for every good work, that you and I may know how to discern truth from error. It is the Word of God that we need to know so thoroughly that we may discern and be able to recognize when falsehoods come about. 
that we do not listen to them, we do not follow them, and we reject them, and we ask them to leave our ranks because they're not meant to be there. It's very important that you understand this. He is calling us to contend, to fight, to stand up, not to back down. I believe that as we teach you the Word of God, this will equip you to do just that, that you won't be deceived, that you won't be led astray, that you will be able to discern for yourself what is truly of God and that which is not. That's why Jude wrote this letter, that we may contend 